0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. We're going to kick this one off with a quick review of an article that uh, I found. It it popped up on my Google News feed because I get all like all it is is all my geeky interest so I get a lot of spider articles and it was also sent to me from my buddy Melissa Fujimoto who obviously found it as comical as I did but here's the deal I've been no i because of the fact that I obviously like tarantulas and Google's identified that I'm a tarantula geek I get these articles and sometimes they're pretty cool sometimes it's nice to find you know an article where they're discussing something that I think they do it in a tactful and informed manner I know what's happening now is there's the big male migration in the United States where the Afanapelma males are going out trying to find the females so I've been seeing a lot of articles about the fact that, hey, guess what? In these certain areas, you may see a bunch of tarantulas. Now, some of them are incredibly sensationalized like giant spiders massive giant spider migration across you know state or whatever something dumb like that i don't know i don't write headlines but something that's obviously meant to be clickbait and attract people to go Ooh, scary spiders and then there's other ones there was one i read that was actually quite that i can't find right now it's driving me nuts because i wanted to give a good example one that was just telling people listen this is natural for these animals these animals are beneficial when you see them don't run them over with your cars don't smash them don't light them on fire because unfortunately there's real sick jerks out there that you know get their jollies off of torturing wildlife so there was one that was really well done and just in such a way that like don't worry about it and they even interviewed a couple people they're like yeah my house is right in the path of it and we get them in my garage I just take a cup and I I move them outside let them go on their way which was great and then we get ones like this one that started off pretty well and then it kind of takes a turn so Basically, the article is obviously about the spider migration. It's called Thousands of Tarantulas are Now on the Move in Colorado. Not too bad, not too exploitive. And they show a picture of an Afonopelma species. And then the article goes on to say thousands of tarantulas are now on the move searching for love. Nice. That's pretty nice. I mean, I, that, I, I like it. It's it's showing that they're not going out just trying to kill people or eat your pets. They're actually out there for a reason. They're looking for love. That's f- fantastic. Every year, a massive tarantula migration sweeps through southeastern Colorado as male spiders search for burrowed females to mate with. When will it peak? It's starting to happen right now. The mating season normally peaks anywhere from mid-September into early October. So again, very informative. I like it. No problems there. Reporter Dallas Krenzel from KUNC met with 22-year-old Cather Merchant, who says you'll find so many tarantulas running around that they're hard to miss. And that's pretty cool, quite frankly. I live, obviously, I'm in Connecticut. We don't get tarantulas. It, we, The closest thing we get is Dalmite species, the fishing spiders, which are quite large and, and kind of fulfill that itch of finding a big giant spider if you, if you manage to find a female. But we don't get tarantulas, so I'm kind of jealous of that. The student of wildlife and natural resource management is no stranger to the wild world of tarantula hunting. He's found these hairy spiders lurking in parking lots, soccer fields, and even open fields behind Colorado State University Pueblo. According to the Denver Channel, one of the best places to see these tarantulas is at Comanche National Grassland near La Junta, Colorado. So, again, great. So far, I'm digging it, loving it, very informative, well-written, easy to read, and hopefully it'll, you know, some people that live in this area will read this article and think, oh, this is great, now I know what's going on, why there's suddenly all tarantulas in my backyard. So, it goes on to say, the fall breeding season brings a few different species of tarantulas to Colorado, including Afanapelma echnum, nicknamed the Colorado Chocolate Brown, Afanapelma coloradanum, and Afanapelma hensi, also known as the Oklahoma Brown Tarantula. These hairy eight legged critters can grow to a leg span of up to 11 inches, nearly twice the length of a dollar bill. Okay, so if I was one to add sound effects to my podcast, this is where we'd have the hard car, you know, the car breaking, the reaching halt because things just went wonky here uh, that would make them one of the biggest species of tarantulas in the world and obviously anybody that's familiar with the Pelma species knows that there are no Pelma species unless i you know hey i could be sadly mistaken but i've done you know quite a bit of research and read about Pelma species i've yet to see an Pelma that is 11 inches long so this is where it gets weird because somebody obviously thought enough of this topic to write a you know an article about it it's in the gazette newspaper uh, probably from the Colorado area I'm guessing I'm not able to scroll up right now but it's in a newspaper you've been hey you know what let's write an article about this wouldn't you do just a little cursory research and find out that that's wrong like where did they get that from Where did somebody just suddenly throw out the arbitrary 11 inches? And it drives me nuts because, again, up to this point, it's a really good article. But you throw something like that in there, and that's the type of sensationalized garbage that people latch onto. So, unfortunately, arachnophobes and people that may be more inclined to kill them than to put a cup over and move them out are about to find out that apparently there are 11-inch spiders out there. That's not helping the cause. Saying that, you know, they max out at around 5 to 6 inches or so, that's a lot more reasonable and, of course, accurate. But saying that they're 11 inches, I just don't even understand where that would come from at this point. Like, did they just make this up? Did somebody, did they talk, is this like fishing stories? Like, I don't fish, so a couple buddies of mine do, but obviously the the big joke about uh, fishing stories is the fact that somebody always caught the big one, the big fish, and they, you know, often don't have proof. Is it the same thing that people live in these regions with tarantulas, come up with, oh, yeah, you thought yours was bad. We had an 11-inch one in my garage. I don't know. It's just bizarre. And it just seems like with somebody that's obviously articulate and intelligent, that's writing this article, that seems to have their heart in the correct place. When they write this, wouldn't you want to make sure, I mean, isn't that part of just journalistic integrity? Even if you're writing for a local news, uh, you know, a newspaper newspaper. Isn't there a point where you go through and check your facts? I mean, it wouldn't take long to look up any of those species and find out none of them get to be 11 inches. So again, I'm not nitpicking this, but this is something that we've kind of talked about through the course of the podcast and every once in a while I'll break out an article. It just frustrates me because I love seeing tarantulas get good press. I love seeing good articles on them. I love ones that are informative and kind of, you know, steer people in the direction that they're not to be scared, you know, you shouldn't be scared of them. You shouldn't kill them. It's a good thing. But then you put something like this in there and that's only going to cause, you know, a bunch of people running around. I'm going yeah you know we have 11 inch tarantulas in our parts so very s- silly mistake as far as I'm concerned that easily could have been fixed. Now it goes on to say male spiders wait 10 years to reach sexual maturity. Um, I I would guess honestly in the wild considering how slow a pelma species grow that's not necessarily wrong. So I'm not going to be hyper critical here and try to pick that apart. I mean I, I'm thinking ballpark, about 10 years. I think those of us who keep tarantulas, and one of the things we're going to be talking about today is growth rate once we get done with this article, realize it's not necessarily 10 years, but that actually sounds pretty accurate, so I'm not going to dispute that. So male spiders wait 10 years to reach sexual maturity. To find a female mating partner hidden in a burrow about a foot underneath the ground, male tarantulas use their hair and legs to detect vibrations. Sadly, they'll mate once and die, often killed by the female they mate with. Yeah, that's not true. Um, again, it's I understand the thought process by it, and I'm sure they're probably trying to paint a pitiful picture of the males. who I used some alliteration there by accident. Um, by showing that, hey, look, at you don't want to kill these guys. They're out looking for love. These 11-inch spiders are just, they're combing the countryside, looking for that lady in the burrow so they can get some love and get munched obviously males can mate more than once what we found is that in captivity with a lot of species and i've discussed this with other keepers before and we've kind of seen the same thing the males don't go gently into that good night when it comes to mating i've seen species i paired recently my bumba cup my male and female and the male you could tell was hardwired somewhere along the lines there's certain males that you can tell are very very well aware that the female is probably going to try to eat them and they do everything in their power to not become a meal that's not something they just go right into and i've noticed like with the the bumba kabokla in particular that male was terrified the entire time and basically flipped her over did the thing and took off and got the heck out of there and what we found is a lot of these species i've even read it about black widows obviously black widows it's become you know a phrase like oh that woman she's a black widow meaning she kills her mate and what we found with black widows in the wild, the males often get away. The females don't get a hold of them because there's a lot a lot of the area to escape to. In the wild, you know, you talk about the difference between being in tanks or in enclosures in our collection and being out in the great outdoors. There's a lot more opportunity to escape. What ends up happening is situations like when I paired my hapalopus species, Columbia larges, and me, like a doofus, left the catch. I, I was in a spot where I was afraid that removing the catch cup would startle the male right into her and she'd eat it. So I had to leave it in there. Well, she ended up backing the male right into the catch cup, and he got munched partially. You know, it was pretty much my fault because it was nowhere for him to go. I'm not sure she kind of folded him over pretty quickly, but he might have had a shot to escape. So we found that in captivity, you know, obviously in the wild. And we've, there's a theory that some species are more likely to eat the males because they need that nutrients to start off because if they're in, you know, more inhospitable places when they have their sack, they're going to need that first meal to jack up so they have something to produce the sack with. So it's kind of like the male does the deed and then becomes the first meal, fattens her up so she's in good shape. Other places, males go on and breed over and over and over again. And you'll notice with a lot of baboon species, it's interesting because, you know, they have the reputation for being super defensive, and some people will call them aggressive, but those are the ones that I found that are a little more gentle with the males. And males and females will pair off for quite a while, and it's more of a, it's not the male trying to get the thing done and get out of the way. They kind of hang around, and the male just kind of calmly moves off. So, To say that the males only mate once is not true. There are males that will likely mate with a female. Get out of the way. She won't eat them. Run off. Find more females. That's not true. It makes it sound like they just mate and die. And again, it's kind of nitpicky. I I don't want to be one of those ones that's super critical. But to say, I mean, I just, the wording, maybe it was unfortunate wording, but it does sound like the article, this individual thinks that the males go out, they mate once and die, whether it's because they, you know, get eaten, whether it's because they, like some animals, they do the mating thing and they're dead within a day, or whether he thinks they just spontaneously combust. I don't know what it is, but it does paint a I, I what i do like about it is it's kind of misinformation but it does paint a more pitiful picture of the males as far as all right i you it kind of engenders sympathy so if i'm reading this I'm like oh poor little guy you mean it scares the heck out of me But he's just looking for love and he's going to die and then maybe people will be more inclined not to squish them or light them on fire i've heard some horrific stories of what people do when they catch the males out and about it's just terrible and maybe they'll let them go on their way and do what they need to do and, and make sure these spiders, you know, mate and continue the keep the populations going. All right. So, luckily, back back to the article. At this point, it kind of goes back on track, and it says, according to a report from the Durango Herald, a male tarantula wander about a half mile a day searching for a female mate. As far as I know, that's true. I mean, I haven't read the actual studies, but I do know they go quite a uh, quite a ways, and that's why a lot of times when people find them, they're you know missing legs, they're haggard, they're scratched up because obviously that sets them up to be you know predated on, and that's where a lot of males get picked off two more great places to spot this natural phenomenon include just north of Ordway on Highway 71 between La Junta and Kim on Highway 109 according to the La Junta Tribune Democrat which I think that's pretty cool that they're saying it like it's a good thing not hey stay the heck away from these things if you if you know if you don't want to be terrified stay away from this place they're saying it like it's an awesome natural phenomenon so again I I don't want to bash this article because I do think there's some good in it and I think the person who wrote its heart is in the right place and I think only geeky tarantula people would probably have picked out that 11 inch thing I just it bothers me only because I think it does undermine what seems to be a a rather solid purpose to writing this, which is, you know, leave these guys alone. They're just trying to do their deed. And to finish up, lucky for all the arachnophobic people out there, tarantulas are pretty harmless and rarely bite humans. If it does happen, a painful bite comes with a very mild venom. If you're curious to see or know more about the spiders roaming around the state, here are five dangerous spiders you'll find in Colorado. All right, probably could have done without that because people are going to think these are five dangerous spiders, Oh, well, kind of ended on a low note there. But anyway, I I wish they had just said, you know, unless you mess with them, they're pretty much not going to bite you. I wish they had mentioned urticating hairs. You're more likely to get haired if you try to pick one up. But overall, you know what? It's a step in the right direction. Again, I my whole Tom's Big Spiders thing is kind of based around trying to make sure there's good information out there and not presenting misinformation. And now that tarantulas are kind of I don't know maybe it's just I'm more aware of it it's one of those things that being is into the hobby as long as I have been and doing this stuff that I pay more attention to but it seems like there's a lot more tarantula articles popping up and more that people are commenting less burn it kill it squish it my god what is that and and more people going wow that's you know it's kind of scary but it's fascinating so hopefully again that's I think one of our jobs as tarantula enthusiasts and hobbyists is to get you know solid information out there I think a lot of us have been in that situation where somebody at work or something does, oh, hey, yeah, yeah, Tom Moran does tarantulas, and then you find yourself in an impromptu discussion trying to defend the fact that you keep these animals that most people find creepy, and I think if done well, we do convince people that there's more, there's less to be afraid of, more to be interested in. So again articles in a step in the right direction I'm not going to completely you know bash it but I do think it's funny that when these things come out they just can't seem to get the information correct it drives me nuts and it makes me wonder how many other articles I read because obviously I may not know as much about you know animals in Africa and I was just reading one the other day on wild dogs and now I'm wondering how much of that was actually true because people just put anything out there and the way the world works nowadays and the media works nowadays you put it in the media and unfortunately people aren't able to sift through and figure out what's real and what's not and it just becomes fact, even though it's probably completely made up. So anyway, just thought that'd be a cool way to start it off for the bulk of the podcast today. We're going to spend a little time talking about growth rates. And what brought this up is I've been doing a series of videos on YouTube and trying to do basically a while back, I introduced this idea of doing tarantula husbandry videos where I really get in, you know, as much information as I can, as many of my observations as I can think of about some species that I've spent a lot of time with. So when I started Tom's Big Spiders, the idea was to, well, first, honestly, if I'm being completely honest, when I started Tom's Big Spiders, the, the, uh, website, I didn't expect anybody to ever see it. And it was kind of a joke with my family, like, look, and I'm going to do this. And, we, you know, we joke about how many people I got. But once I noticed I was getting an audit- audience and people were actually listening to me, the idea was to not just go, hey, I just purchased this adult tarantula. And now I'm going to tell you exactly how to keep it and act like I'm some authority on it, because that kind of drives me nuts. It's like anybody can go out there, and pick up an adult. And uh, I found when I was looking for information on tarantulas, like if I was looking for, say, C-signal pubicins, I-, I would find people that actually kept them and raised them them from slings. Those were the people I wanted to hear from. But you'd also find people that don't even keep them. They just copied and cut and paste from some other, you know, care guide they found online. And then you'd have people that if you paid close enough attention, they would tell you how to raise them all the way up from the sling, but you found out they just got there six months ago and it was an adult. And again, not that anybody can do this they want. And obviously showing people what you do and how you keep it is great information. It just comes down to when you're trying to talk about it with authority, like, look at I'm an expert at this. And I've never call myself an expert for that reason, because, you know, I changed things over the course of the years. I'm still learning. I don't have any degrees in this. I'm a hobbyist who likes making observations and like sharing the observations. So for me, it's important when I'm getting care information, not that it's packaged up super nice or not that it's, you know, they've got great shots of the spiders, which are great because it's going to attract more people. Again, that's not something it's something I'm trying to improve on in my own videos right now. Now, because I'm realizing I'm, you know, people are going to uh, pass my stuff over because there's slicker productions out there, and and sadly, people will sometimes look at the slicker production and go, "Well, that's definitely the better information." Because look at this guy's got a nicer camera and knows how to use it better. So, I just find that when looking for good information, I want to hear from somebody who got them from slings. So, for example, I have my adult female Nandra Trepepi, and I just got an email the other day. Hey, Tom, um, how did you keep her as a sling? And my response was, unfortunately, I got this as an adult. I do not have experience keeping the slings yet. I told them how I would keep the slings, but made it very clear that I don't have that type of experience to be in a, you know, any type of authority on how to keep Nandu to peppy slings. Now, I think I've kept enough spiders that I probably know what I'm doing that I can keep them correctly. But that's important for people to, as far as I'm concerned, that people know that. I did a series of husbandry videos a while back, or not a series, it was part of a series, but I was doing some of the slings because people were like, hey, you have the species, I have the species, how are you keeping it? And I tried to make it very clear in the video that there's more to come, and that you may want to research other, I always tell people to research other opinions, honestly. But for these, it was like, all right, so far so good, but I've only raised them for two molts, that doesn't mean that my care is correct. These guys are very resilient, I could be keeping them completely wrong, they could be dead in two months because of my bad care. So don't just listen to me, go out and find somebody that's actually raised." them to adulthood and I think that's very important when you're seeking good information and I'd like to think that's somewhat what attracts people to the podcast and to my videos in particular and when I hear positive things said, it's usually people like the fact that I'm transparent and generally talk about stuff that only when I think I know a lot about it. So one of the things I've been doing is this video series, I brought it back, I originally did it, it was part of like, I plan on doing like a, a monthly series where I covered a bunch of topics and it just didn't pan out, I just... Honestly, didn't have the time at that point to get it going, but I did create a new style of husbandry video where I it was very note-heavy. I la- I tried to show pictures of all the different enclosures that you could keep them in because the, the idea is I kind of, when I'm doing this, I'm also teaching. With teaching, there's usually notes involved. There's usually pictures. You know, you're, you're trying different ways of saying and presenting things. So the idea is people that are, you know, just hear things and can watch it on a video will pick it up, but also people that like the notes part, there were notes there. So a lot of heavy notes and things of that nature. And I came back to it for a little while did some stuff with it. Now I'm kind of tightening it up. And now the point of these guys, these videos, is to get is have it focus on the spider. So it's not going to just be the rehousing videos. I think those are great, but focus on the spider and give as much information as I can think of from my experience. And I also listen to a lot of other keepers because I talk to a lot of people, so I hear different things about spiders, so I can kind of check my own information. And one point that's come up repeatedly, and that I'm you know still I'm doing a video right now on. Cramastola is one of my favorite species of all time, I've been dying to do like, I've done a couple little videos that are older crummy videos that aren't really nearly as good as the ones I'm doing now. It's back in the old day was me holding my phone in my transfer where I'm just talking. They were just, they were terrible, but people seemed to like the information. So I'm covering that species, and I got to the point where each of these videos, I talk about their, you know, what maximum size they get, and I talk about growth rates. And the problem I found over the years is growth rates vary widely depending on a lot of different factors, and sometimes I think it's just specimen to specimen. So for example, I have a Brachypelma erotum that I picked up, I believe, five years ago now that is, I think, right around three and a half inches, but she took when I got her she was about a third of an inch maybe a, maybe a quarter of an inch it was a tini- one of the tiniest slings I ever got but took forever to grow so I've been you know I've done she's been featured in a couple videos and I posted pictures up of her up and I've talked about how slowly she grows now here's what we talk about all the time about the difference between you you see something in your own collection and for a lot of us it's difficult not to just assume that's the norm So, for example, I saw my Brachypelma erotum. She took forever to grow. Obviously, Brachypelma species are notorious for taking forever to grow. And I just assumed that was the norm, which I do think for most people it is. However, I've had a few people come forward, you know, in comment sections and say, yeah, I got one at the same size. She's already an inch after about seven months. And so then we get into a discussion, you know, how are you keeping her? What, you know, what temperatures are you keeping her at? But you realize suddenly that, there's even a couple degrees in temperature difference can make all the difference in the world as far as the growth rates, so I'm making these videos, and people want to know, and this is a question I get, I got a very frustrated comment the other day, well, it turned frustrated because I wasn't able to answer it the way the person wanted, but they asked, it was on, it might have been on my molting video, and they basically asked, you know, you talk about pre-molts, you talk about molting, well, how long does it take a spider to molt, or how long between molts, and how long should a molt take, and My response was, unfortunately, there are so many variables in in terms of spider growth rate that there's no way, the reason why you haven't seen anybody do this is because you can't accurately do this. I can't tell you that it's going to take your C. kyanopubicins exactly two months to go between molts. I can't do that because there's so many factors that weigh into it. The, the, the spider's genetics. Sometimes people think the sex has something to do with it. And just a, a matter of a couple degrees, one way or the other, can drastically change how quickly they grow. So I've struggled with this on my videos. And I do want to do, again, these are super thorough and I want to report the spot I run into is I want to report my own observations I think that's something it it seems to me people appreciate that and I I get a lot of thank yous for the fact that I'm sharing what I'm seeing in my own collection and I never present it as or I try not to present it God knows I've probably slipped before as this is the norm in other words I'm not going to say my spider took four years to go from a quarter of an inch to one inch That's what you can expect from yours. I put it out there more so that people that end up with the slower growing specimens realize, oh, I could have the same thing happen. It's sharing your experiences. Again, one of the reasons you go out and I encourage people to go out and and listen to other people and look for you know, go on Arachno boards, go on the boards, ask people because you're going to get a whole different group of answers as far as especially to questions like that. So I'm trying to do this Grammostola poker peas video, and I have a whole section on it where I talk about my two babies. The first two I got, I got from Jamie's tarantulas. They were about, I'll say, a third of an inch long. When they get that tiny, I think some people overestimate the size of their tarantulas sometimes. They they hear, they hear, think, you know, a third of an inch, and then a third of an inch spider is, is very tiny. And I put them up in the AMAC enclosures, the Jamie's enclosures, gave them the substrate to dig in, They, uh, as the Grammostola poker peas will do. Did I say poker early or poker? Just know that if I said polka, now I'm second guessing myself that I might have said the wrong species we're talking about, polka peas here. And I put them in these containers. They ate a couple times. I was giving them pre-kill because they're super tiny. And then right around, I think it was like October, November, both of them burrowed and buried themselves completely. They didn't come out again until April. It was a long time. I honestly, and this was several years ago, probably uh six years ago maybe. I thought they were dead. I assumed they were dead. I didn't dig them up. I would keep uh, one corner of the substrate moist at all times, just in case you know it was getting dry in my room, This was before I had the heater in the room, because right now the room never dips below around seventy-two or so on the lower shelves, and back then it would easily hit you know sixty-eight. Sometimes, rare occasion, sixty-seven. And they obviously didn't come out for a long time. And when they both reemerged, neither looked like they had molted. So this looked more like a fast than a molt. I can't be positive, but I have found with my G poker bees they will throw out the molts. Usually there was no molts thrown out and they looked pretty much the same size they did before. They were still a little bit chubby. So this was a situation where they fasted and I will obviously the growth rate because of that when you spend the first you know several months of keeping a spider and it's tiny and it doesn't grow at all that's really going to kind of slow down the growth rate and it took these guys a good oh god it was close to two years I think to finally hit that one inch mark now once they hit the one inch mark they were fine. They were eating like pigs. They were the growth rate seemed to speed right up. So anyway, I'm mentioning this in both the article and the video. But the last time I mentioned this, I had several people come forward and went, wow, there must have been something wrong with yours because mine hit one inch easily within you know six or seven months. And again, then we start getting into the discussion of temperatures and whatnot. And come to find out, theirs were kept around mid-70s to 80. Well, one was kept the mid-70s to 80. One of them was kept in the 80s. So I always mention in all of my videos and all my articles that obviously warmer temperatures lead to faster metabolisms, which usually lead to faster growth rate, to a point, especially with slings, it's more so apparent with slings, I think, than adults, so let's make that differentiation, but early on, if you keep your slings at warmer temperatures, you're generally going to have much faster growing animals, and so it's tough, because I found that it can be a matter of degrees, like a couple degrees, can account for so much difference in growth rate, so uh, for example, I was talking to uh, a guy who was raising Gramastol Polkra, and he, I was talking about how mine took forever to grow, and there's some thought that Kiragai and Polkra grow at different, one grows faster than the other, and then there's thought that they're all guy or that, you know, the Polkras that are in here, we're not sure which are Polkra, that's, I've covered that whole topic before, and will the real G. Polkra please stand up, it was an older podcast, but there have been people that have reported drastically different growth rates with their Pokra. And in my case, I was telling the guy how long it took mine to go from about three quarters of an inch to it was about an inch and a half and start showing its black color. Well, his was kept at, I swear, it was like two degrees warmer overall, just during the course of the year, two degrees warmer. And his easily hit three inches in the time that mine hit like an inch. It was that, and he showed me the molts, like, I didn't, I think I came across like a jerk, like, I didn't believe him, it wasn't that, I just, I like to see proof of stuff, because I hear a lot of things, and then when I ask, like, can I see some proof of it, nobody, you know, ponies up and shows me anything, but he did, he was able to show me all the molts dated, and this thing molted several times in the course of mine molting, like, once, so we start looking at, I think what I'm starting to discover just from my own keeping and from, you know, talking to others about when they keep theirs is that, just a couple of degrees can make a big difference with some of these species. Now, there are some species out there, and I'll just point them out, like the Pesolithereus species, I've had fast growth rate with them even when I was keeping my tarantulas cool. There's something about those, and obviously, most of them come from very warm regions, but the majority of my Pesolithereus species, I have monstrous growth rates on. There's no issues there. The P of, of Formictopus species, my Formictopus species generally grow very quickly. Like, I get a lot of growth in the first year, and just before this article, before this article, before this podcast, I went back and looked at some of the dates when I acquired mine and a lot of mine were acquired as slings in October, you know, September, October. So in the fall, when my temperatures in my house were getting much lower, my first two peak Ceredes I picked up, I believe around October and they grew straight through the winter. They were putting on massive size. It was no issues whatsoever with growth rate. But then I've noticed some other species that just a couple Couple degrees higher, you know, especially for the folks that keep them in the 80s, you're going to see a much faster growth rate. So, for example, Gramostola pulchrapees. The reason why I bring this one up is because a lot of people have come forward and said, nope, they're one of their fastest growing Gramostola species. One guy said that. He goes, I've kept several Gramostola species. The pulchrapees was easily one of the fastest growers I've ever had. And it ended up, he was in California, someplace where the temperatures there are almost always in his terrarium room in 80s. So, obviously that had a big impact. Now his did slow down a bit once it got, again, it's more the slings and juveniles that you're going to see that faster growth rate with, but his did slow down a bit once they got larger, but his lapped mine in terms of growth. He and I remember specifically because one thing I found with the G-Poker peas, and I've had other people back this up, is once they hit that magic inch mark, they seem to really, the growth rate seems to pick up quite a bit. It's that earlier time period when you first get them and they're like, you know, a quarter of an inch or a third of an inch, it seems to take them forever to reach that inch mark. And I have heard this from other keepers, but again, we're talking about people keeping them at room temperatures and, you know, possibly down to the low 60s, but most, most of the people I've talked to, it's right around in the 70s. So that's a species that seems to really benefit from a little, or heat will have a huge effect on its growth rate. The other one, P. murinus, I have one of the slowest growing P. murinus ever that I've heard of. I have one person I talked to that also reported that theirs was incredibly slow growing, on par with a gramastole or a brachypelma species. Now I'm assuming people listening to this podcast right now, there's some people out there that have raised and are going, what in God's name are you talking about? Mine grew like ridiculously fast apparently this is one of the species that if you have those higher temperatures you're likely to see a much faster growth rate. So mine was one of the first slings I ever got. It was before there was any extra heat in my tarantula room. That room would get chilly, and I did pick it up. That was one of the ones I picked up in October. I remember that one very clearly because I had gone to a horror expo and brought a bunch of money with me, and I didn't end up spending a lot of the money. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to order some more tarantulas. So I went home and picked one up. So I picked it up in the wintertime. That one took a long time. It was a good eater. It ate well for me. ate very well for me, but took a long time in pre Took a long time between malts. If I remember correctly, it took like, it was like a year had gone by and it was still like under an inch and a half, maybe even smaller. I mean, it took a while. I had it in one of the Jamie's AMAC box enclosures and it took forever before I had to rehouse it because it was growing so slowly. Well, so when I started doing care sheets on these guys and some husbandry notes, I was like, yeah, this is one of my slowest growing. And so many people came forward and they're like, what are you talking about? These things grow like weeds. So again, this seems to be one where just a slight difference in temperature, you know, the more you give it a little more heat, you're going to get much faster growth early on. And again, one thing we want to make very, very clear is that I think a lot of people, they hear that they're growing more slowly and they think that that's bad for the tarantula. And I don't necessarily think that's the case because I will say that one thing they are getting more consistently in captivity is food. So you figure in the wild, They're going to have those, a lot of these guys are coming from places where it's much, much warmer than it's going to be in our house at any given day. But food might be a little more difficult to come by when they have periods of drought, when there's just not a lot of prey around. It might be a little more difficult to come by. I say might because I don't know but it does seem reasonable that somebody isn't dropping prey items when their slings right in front of them every, you know, two or three days when they're first born. So I do think there's a factor there to think of. And obviously you can jack up the heat as much as you want. You can jack the heat up to 85 degrees. If you're not feeding them a lot, that's not, you're not going to get the growth rate. They're going to be hungry. The metabolism is going to be up, but you're not going to get the growth rate. So it is a combination. Like when people talk about quote unquote power feeding, which really isn't a thing with tarantulas, but they'll also, people will read about power feeding. They'll get a sling in they like I want to power feed my sling and they don't realize that in theory if power feeding even work you have to also up the heat so if you're keeping your sling at 65 degrees in your house and you're just dropping prey items in what you're usually going to end up with is a sling that will eat a lot and then it's going to go into a very long pre-malt period. And this is where you get people that, you know, start talking about species that normally don't fast fasting. It's because they spiders will eat so much. And then if they eat a lot in a shorter time, they just spend longer in the pre-malt period, especially if the temperatures aren't up. You raise the temperatures, it seems to just stimulate. Everything moves faster. So I think one of the things I would love to hear from people is just species and this would be great for me because I'd love to revisit this in a video or something and talk about growth rate but I don't have all the information to do it but one thing I'd love to hear from people is what what are some of your experiences with faster growing or slower growing tarantulas meaning are there species out there that you hear people go hey these are incredibly slow growing but you have one that went from you know quarter inch to three inches in a year so for example another one that comes up quite a bit is Brachypelma hammeri I have – my hemorrhage is growing at a glacially – slow pace she barely I mean it's years between molts now she's not that big yet probably four four and a half inches or so I've had her for several years her appetites eh, okay but I do keep her on a lower shelf her temperatures probably through most of the year around like right now on that shelf I think it's about 70 72 and during the summer it'll hit you know high 70s but she doesn't grow particularly fast and I've talked to other people that you know they said they're slow growing but there's a running lapse around my girl so I'd be curious to hear from other people out there. What are some of the species that, A, people talk about being fast-growing, B, people talk about being slow-growing that you're seeing the opposite from? And then when you chime in, it would be great if you could kind of throw out what temperatures do you keep yours at? That's an important factor because I have, when when it becomes odd to me is when people will go, like I had somebody on a YouTube video comment on, it might have been the the Porteri, my G. Porteri. And said that theirs grow really fast and really quickly. And I go, oh, well, what are your temperatures? And they're like, ah, 72. And that weirded me out because I'm like, all right, that's basically what mine are. So sometimes I think you just have a situation where the animal's a better eater, grows quicker. Obviously, people are different in that way. Any animal, there can be differences between, from specimen to specimen as far as just their own genetic ability to grow you know, slowly or quickly. But I do think a lot of it does have to do with the temperament and the environment. I've also heard from people that keep them in very dry environments that they get faster growth rates. So I was talking to somebody that was in California where they talked about their temperatures were not, just. it wasn't just their temperatures were high, but it tended to be rather dry there. And that seemed to stimulate the growth. So I had a buddy of mine that was keeping, it, it was Hapalopus species Columbia larges and I thought they were one of my fastest growing species, I had a male mature out, and I believe it was like 13 months, it was just over a year, and that was one of the fastest ones I'd had mature out, besides my C. darlinga matured out pretty quickly as well, but I remember being surprised by it, and she's like, my male matured out in six months, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me, and we started talking about it, like, it's super humid, but I believe it was from a drier area where the temperatures were always right around 80 in her house, and just the the amazing growth she got her female was she had a breeding age female I think in like a year and a half or something where it took me a lot longer than that to get mine up the breeding age so I do think that's something I struggle with when I do these videos and I do the husbandry because people want to know what the growth rates are people want to know if I get a sling I can expect my spider to start showing adult colors here that's probably one of the biggest questions I get when I do a video or husbandry video on something, is when do they show the adult colors? How long do they take to grow? And it can be so difficult to answer without getting into a long-winded discussion about there are so many factors. Personal genetics of the the specimen you're talking about, the temperature is obviously a huge one. The feeding schedule is a huge one. And there's some of us suspect that maybe the ambient humidity in the room, not getting into changing humidity or anything, because I don't think there's enough here, but I have heard of situations where it seems like if it's drier, for some reason, they do better. And that could be because of their natural surroundings. That could be a period where there's food, you know, that could be their hot season where their metabolism is jacked up, that the overall humidity is going to be low, but they're going to find a lot of food. Who knows? It's something, to look into when you look into where they come from in their natural habitats. But I do find that a difficult question to answer, and it's one that keeps getting asked. So the point of the podcast today was the to more share some discussions. For people that are just getting into the hobby, know that if you ask people how long does it take, you are probably going to end up with a bunch of different answers. And none of them are wrong. None of them are incorrect. It just depends on the situation. So the best questions to ask are what growth rate did you get with yours? How often did you feed them? What temperatures are they kept at? And pay careful attention to those winter temps because what I'm realizing now with some of mine is that they will, I I have certain species that seem to be if the temperatures dip to a certain point, it seems to trigger that idea that they're not going to be eating much and they kind of shut down. So for example, for those two peas that we started talking about, I'm fairly convinced that it was a combination of the temperature dropping to the 60s, the the high 60s, and the fact that that when the heat kicks on in my house, it dries out the air, So my air in here is very, very dry. I'm thinking those two factors triggered something that's in their genetics to recognize, all right, food's going to be scarce now, time to, you know, close up shop. That's my guess. And a lot of people back in the day when people used to get G. Porteris, they would find that they would be triggered to stop eating during certain times of the year. Some people thought it was it aligned with what the winter was in Chile, that they just naturally recognize this type of year I don't eat. I have a funny feeling they recognize other factors that we might not think about, like how dry it is in the house, and how warm it is. It could be cooler, but drier. That could send a message to the tarantula as well. So I do think if you're asking those questions, you need to, you need to follow it up with a little bit more and leave them a little bit more with how quickly did yours grow what temps you check, you know, what is your local climate? What is, what are they kept at all year round, winter and summer, the warm months and the cooler months, and that's going to give you a better idea of what to expect. And then what you can do is kind of get an idea of which of those climates uh, climates matches your own. So for example, being in Connecticut, we're going to have hot, often humid summers, we're going to have long, you know, honestly, in the grand scheme of some other people in New England, we have milder winters, but it does get cold, heat does kick on, air does get dry. You're going to want to talk to somebody that has that kind of same situation to get a better idea of your growth rate because other than that if you can't pinpoint some of those things and narrow it down and get a better idea it's kind of a shot in the dark I can't tell you how long it's going to take yours to grow I can't tell somebody all right you have a quarter inch B hammer eye you can expect to see adult colors in a year you just can't because there's too many factors involved so to the new keepers this is what you have to expect if you're getting into it it, it that this can be a tough one to pick out the growth rates and I think some people get frustrated because they can't seemingly get straight answers, but it's not, we're not trying to confound, you know, confound you or anything. It's, you're not going to necessarily get consistent answers across the board now for you folks who have kept for a while I'd love to hear some stories about your growth rates what are you keeping them at what are you seeing as far as growth rates are you seeing growth rates that seem to be much quicker than a lot of the people that you hear about are you seeing slower ones I'd love to hear it because again part of the times Big players for me selfishly is collecting information for myself and again I turn around and anything I find out here I'll obviously turn around and report on and I would like to do something I would like to do a you know an update podcast and talk about this and I would like to do a video talking about this because I think it's important information that people need to know and be aware of that isn't often covered and it's kind of difficult to just in the middle of a husbandry video stop and go into a big okay let's talk about growth rate it just it would bog the whole thing down but it would be nice to do a video and be able to go if you want to hear more about growth rate check out this one or if you want to hear more about growth rate check out this podcast but what is everybody seeing what have you found what are some species that you found that grow a lot faster for you or a lot slower I'd love to hear what you guys have to say So to end this one up, we um, (laughs) talk a little bit about this because it's going to be interesting. I was on YouTube a couple days ago and I basically, long story short, Petco from the Dark Den did what was a hot sauce challenge where I think people immediately thought he was going to feed his tarantulas hot sauce and unfortunately jumped on him. But the idea was it was a fun feeding game where you try to feed 10 tarantulas And if one of the tarantulas don't eat, you have to take a bite of something with this ridiculously hot, hot sauce on it, which I, quite frankly, and here's the deal. It's fun. And I don't do a lot of fun stuff. And I thought it was really nice of them to... I was one of the people mentioned he basically challenged a bunch of us and I don't do a lot of feeding videos. I obviously don't do a lot of, you know, quote unquote fun things because I try to keep it educational, but I'm not going to lie. It's fun sometimes to mix it up gives it, it shows a little bit more of a different side of me. I'm a little bit afraid with this one only because I quite frankly I do like spicy food. I do like uh putting I Frank's red hot. I use it on everything. When I was reading when I was watching his video, I was actually eating macaroni and cheese with Frank's red hot. But unfortunately the sauce that he was using makes Frank's red hot look like nothing, like milk. Like it's just not even comparable. And my 16-year-old son who loves watching the videos where people his big one of his big goals is to eat a ghost pepper or some of these, you know, it's six, he's 16 it's one of those like manlyhood things and he's dying to do this. he's like oh i know what that hot sauce is i've seen this on things before so the day we i ordered the hot sauce the hot sauce comes in i take a little bit on the end of my finger put it on my tongue and i'm like you've got to be freaking kidding me i'm going to end up with ulcers like I I don't want to get graphic, but this stuff is this stuff's gonna hurt. And so my son's like, oh, I'll do it. So he gets a a chip and he dips it and he puts it in there. And I probably should have taped it, but I was afraid people would think I put him up to it and it was some type of abuse because this kid he, he went from oh it's not that but oh, it's not that and then went into this just beautiful like dance of pain when this stuff hit because apparently you get a moment where it feels okay and then it hit hits. He's drinking milk. He went through almost a half gallon of milk. He ended up going for a walk because he was sweating so bad, badly that he was hoping that walking would get his blood pumping and get rid of it. So it was like a good half hour later, he'd finally calmed down. And so now I have to, in my mind, this weekend, Billy and I, Billy's out going out right now. We've got the hot sauce. She's going to pick up. I had to pick up chicken tenders or something. I'm not doing crackers. I'm going to try to do something with substance so I can kind of like water it down a bit but we'll be shooting that one later today and to be honest it's gonna it'll be fun it it really will but I'm like I'm at the age now I think where my trying to prove my manlyhood by torturing myself just doesn't appeal to me you know I went through that stage I think a lot of us guys do we're kind of idiots that way where it's like somebody dares you to do something that's obviously going to bring a lot of pain and you go I can do that and I just don't want to spend the whole weekend. in pain and agony because I did this so again I'm excited it's going to be fun and I love things that make me you know go outside of my normal comfort zone with these videos now in real life I, and again if anybody if I ever make it to Billy and I joke that I think people will be I think pleasantly surprised that I'm not nearly as dry as I come across in the podcast and videos I mean people that have talked to me behind the scenes know that I'm not you know and again, it's not phoniness. It's just, I'm teaching and I don't, there's no place for my sense of humor or for me to, you know, use profanity or anything like that. It's just not my thing. It's a totally different mindset for me. When I go to school, it's not home Tom it's teacher Tom It's, it's, you know, that code switching where you're able to turn it on and turn it off. So I, I do think that things like this allow me to have a little more fun. Uh, You know, we did, what was the, um, tarantula take the off the tongs challenge with mark from mark's tarantulas great guy and we're supposed to be doing another one of these i got to get a hold of them i was supposed to do it this summer but it's a fun way for me to kind of break out of my comfort zone show a little bit more of my personality so it'll be fun but i'm just i'm literally no joke i'm sitting here doing this podcast and i can see my dinner table and that bottle of hot sauce is sitting on it and i'm like I'm really worried about how bad this is gonna go. Now, to make it fair, when Petco did his, he basically he had a list of all his tarantulas and he used a random number generator. And whatever number came up, he matched it up to the list of tarantulas. That was the one he had to feed, so that kept him from picking any of the ones that he knew were in primo or that wouldn't eat. I'm not gonna do anything so sophisticated. I told Billy, you can go pick 10. We'll take it from there. So Hopefully, I hopefully she picks ones that aren't pre I've mentioned a couple lately that are in premol that aren't going to eat. So hopefully she was paying attention because this could either go really well because I have some gradient tarantulas or the last time, you know, every time I try to do tarantula feeding videos, I have terrible luck getting them to eat. And I got a funny feeling this is going to end up with me with a bleeding ulcer in my stomach. So just thought I'd share that only because it's going to be a fun thing and I will be talking about it next week after it's done. I'll share how it went. Wish me luck. Hopefully, it goes well. Hopefully, the majority of meat. I figure I got one bite of that hot sauce in me before I'm like, forget this. I don't want to do this anymore. And again, I'm just at that age now where I don't feel like being in misery. And I know what'll happen. You know, I love buffalo chicken pizza. I absolutely love buffalo chicken pizza. I try it every place we go. And usually, the cheese on the pizza is a nice way to kind of buffer against the hot sauce. And there's been a couple times where they've used more than just regular Frank's Red Hot. And you know what? It wasn't a pleasant experience. So, We'll leave it at that, but that's what I've got going right after we do this podcast. I'm going to save this. I'm going to edit it up. Billy's out shopping right now. She's going to be picking up some chicken tenders, and we're going to be doing that one. So that should be interesting, and I'll obviously open up next podcast for that because it should make for a uh, at least a funny discussion. So wish me luck, guys. So, So anyway, that'll about do it for this one. Um, again feel free to chime in and I'm trying to catch up on Facebook comments know guys that I do read every single Facebook comment usually what happens now is I'm at school work's been kicking my butt and I spend a lot of time on the computer at school I spend a lot of time writing emails so it's been tough finding the time to get everything done and respond and I hate not responding to people I do know that I am reading basically I'll do it at work sometimes I'm sitting there in the morning have my morning coffee I whip out my phone and go through comments so I am reading them, and I'm going to try to respond to all these so please know I do appreciate I really appreciate everybody's participation when I put a call out for information and people do it. And oh, one more thing before I forget, I will be doing the voiceover for the beginner species video that a lot of people chimed in for. I'll be doing that later today. So be looking for that one. I'm going to be realistic. Give me two weeks and that one will probably be ready to roll. And I'm very excited about that because I I thought it was a fun idea. And I think it's going to be kind of a, I think it's gonna be kind of a cool thing. So anyway, as always, thanks so much for everyone who takes the time to listen. I thoroughly appreciate it. And we will catch you all next time.